0: It is a a real privilege to be able to share on this trans, this special day of uh, which we celebrate the uh, transformation of Christ, um, if you will, the metamorphosis of Christ in which his glory was revealed to the disciples as he prepared himself for the rest of uh, his His walk toward the cross. Um, I must confess that um, this is one of my favorite uh, subjects. Um, I get excited over mountains and storms. <laughs> um, somehow, I feel at home, uh, and it's kind of odd as as a coastal boy with salt water running through my veins. Um, It's at mountains and on mountaintops where something deep inside of me is comforted and and, and put to rest um, and at ease and even fulfilled. And perhaps even more oddly, um, I have that same experience in the middle of storms. Um, I love storms and I don't just love storms from afar. Uh, growing up on the coast, I used to do a lot of offshore fishing and got caught in some very, very bad storms, 60, 70 miles off the coast in a, you know 26-foot boats, and um, it's kind of like Captain Dan, if you remember the scene from, uh, <laughs> from Forrest Gump, except instead of uh, yelling at God, I was just... You know, yelling in exultation about how great it was you know, the lightning crashing all around us and um, yeah um, and I do think definitely as a, as a Christian that, that you know, these storms are significant um, in part because you know, within them there is an echo of Sinai the mysterious presence of God cloaked in a dark cauldron of wind, rain lightning, and thunder. As terrifying as it is and can be at times, we were made to encounter God as he's been revealed, not in the Old Testament only, but also in the New Testament. And so clouds, storms, and mountains are very significant in the Old Testament. Uh, Mountains, um, we see some of the most important stories happening in the Old Testament on mountains. Uh, The story of Abraham and Isaac, if you remember, Um, Abraham is invited up to to the mountain to to give Isaac as a sacrifice, his only son, whom God has promised, who would be the beginning of a nation that he was going to to bring through his seed. And of course. At the last moment, God meets him, and and out of this comes one of my favorite sayings, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Later in Exodus, as we've read, the the birth of a a nation, the nation of Israel, was, was at stake, and God meets them at Mount Sinai and gives his covenant to them, making him their people. Mount Carmel... Elijah, the prophet, confronts all of the prophets of Baal, over 400 of them, and God shows up and shows his glory, shows him as the Almighty One, power, more powerful than Baal. And, of course, um, Elijah takes care of the prophets of Baal in a very special way. <laughs> but one of, the thing, one of the themes that we see in the Old Testament is, is that the, the glory cloud of God is related to the presence of God, and, and namely in two ways. The first one is in judgment. When God comes in His presence, in His glory, we see oftentimes judgment being what happens. And, and this is a part of the very nature of God. If God never shows up, man, you know ambivalence is not his thing. And so when he shows up, he deals with what needs to be dealt with. and And, and so we see um, beginning in, in Eden, uh, the, the the judgment of God coming in on the winds of a storm, which is probably a better translation than in the cool of the evening, which is which kind of gives us a hint of why Adam and Eve were actually scared. You know, that, that, that they, they, God was coming in his glory in the storm, and that's why they hid from him. We see it in judgment at Sinai, um, and, and ju- the, the sins of, of, of Israel, in a sense, were being judged through God's giving of the Old Testament. Judgment came when sin was aroused by the law. And so, so, in a sense, we see God in his judgment preparing uh, a people for himself. Um, and then secondly, so we have in, in judgment, we also have in tabernacle, in dwelling with the people of God. Uh, one of a, a beautiful story is, is when God fills the tabernacle that, that was built in the wilderness with his presence. We see a fire. You know, kind of like a mini storm, but but a pillar of fire coming down and filling the tent of meeting with his glory. And and as Moses beheld that glory, what happened to his face? You remember? Shone. It glowed. It glowed. We also see God's presence and his glory as a storm, as a fire coming down at the dedication of Solomon's temple. And um, I, I love this passage out of 2 Chronicles 7-1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces on the ground, on the pavement, and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Isn't that amazing that even in, the, if you will, the terror of his presence, what comes out of his people, is awareness of His goodness I can only come through the revelation of God to His people, and so today, what I what I hope to do um, is really give us not. I mean, I guess I'll talk and I'll teach some, but I also want to take us through through Scripture and see because really this passage of really rests upon. The scripture around, around it, and before it, and after it, and so, um, and we'll look at that. That the glory of God revealed, as well, precedes the ratification of His covenant with His people. So again, the glory of God revealed precedes the ratification of His covenant with His people. So, we're in Matthew seventeen. And uh, we find Jesus with his disciples probably up in the area of Caesarea Philippi. Um, it's been a pretty, pretty important day or a week in time, um, right on the hills of, 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 of Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, where, where Jesus, if you remember, asks them, who do the people say I am? Some of the questions, you're Elijah, you're, you're John the Baptist. And then out of that, Jesus asked, but who do you think I am? And of course, we get... Peter's great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And from that, we, we read, Matthew begins to tell us that, that from that point on, after Peter's confession, he begins to tell the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to be handed over to the priests and scribe to be killed, and on the third day, be raised from the dead. And of course, Peter doesn't like that, rebukes Jesus. And um, And again, out of that, Jesus begins to teach that in following him, one must take up their cross daily and follow him. And so this is the context in which we we meet um, Jesus on the mountain with the disciples. So after six days, this passage begins, which is is a, a direct reference to Sinai, Moses being on top of the mountain and the mountain. I mean, the cloud resting upon him for six days. So so Matthew is tying his readers. It's a uh, a, a clue for us to think about Sinai. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And again, this word transfigured, is, is, can be understood as almost more of a metamorphosis. His bodily form is literally changed into as he is in glory. So he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, this is pretty heavy. Moses and Elijah. to a Jew, that's kind of like the Mount Rushmore of, of, of the prophets. Um, it, it really, it can't get any headier than this for them. And, and of course, it, it, I think, begets, you know, the, the, the question, what were they talking about? Matthew does not mention this, but in the parallel. As is recorded by, by Luke in, in chapter 9, verse 30, Luke explains, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, now to me, this is, is, is fascinating. On One part, you know, to let the disciples in on this. But, but it also, to me, says a lot about the humanity of Jesus and, the, and his father meeting him. On one hand, we would think, he wouldn't need to talk to these guys about that. He's Jesus. He knows it all. But the reality is when Jesus cloaked himself in humanity, coming into this world, he cloaked himself in the frailness of humanity. He laid aside many of the things that made him God. Most of the things, in fact, everything he did, he did by the leading of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe here we see a wonderful picture of God meeting the need of his son to be encouraged. And of course, knowing a few important people, he sends no less than Moses and Elijah. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here: one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And um, Peter, as he is wont, <laughs> as he does so often, shows his capacity to speak and to act boldly, often putting his foot in the mouth in his mouth and doing so. And I love what John Calvin has to say of, of Peter's remarks, of his suggestion. He says that Peter was so captivated by the beauty of what he beheld as to lose sight of every other person and rest satisfied with the mere enjoyment of it. Psalm 16, 11, speaking of being in the presence of God. Thy presence is the fullness of joy. I think Calvin shows a little more grace to Peter than, than we normally do. and and But still, Calvin, you know, continuing mentions a few reasons why Peter's response so well-meaning was ultimately foolish. The first was an obvious that Peter did not comprehend the full design of the vision given to him. I mean, he sees a very neat thing happening in front of him, and he, wants, he doesn't want it to go away. This is a good thing. Let's build tabernacles so that we can dwell here for a while. The second mistake was that he absurdly put the servants... Moses and Elijah, on level with their Lord. Thirdly, he was mistaking and proposing to build facing tabernacles for men who had already been admitted to the glory of heaven and to the angels. (laughs) It's kind of absurd. I'm going to make you guys a really nice spread here. It didn't work. didn't work. And in response to Peter's suggestion, when he was speaking, verse 5, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, we've heard the voice of God from heaven come before at his baptism, and, and, and God declaring that, that, that this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. But that was for Jesus to receive. But this time, he speaks it, not only in the presence of Moses and Elijah, but also in the presence of Peter, James, and John. And, and what fascinates me here immediately, and what I want to suggest to you, is the mercy of God the Father already at work. Already at work. Because we see the severity of God and his presence clearly in the Old Testament. I'm just going to read from Exodus 19:9 9 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, and the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but when he, but he shall be shown, stoned or shot the one who touches the mountain. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain, but they shall not touch it. So we see the grace and mercy of God already radically different, and that in his presence, as his glory cloud comes down upon James, John, and Peter, they aren't destroyed. They aren't destroyed. In fact, they are corrected and restored. And so when they hear, and hearing the, the, the voice of God, verse, verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Again, let's go back to Exodus to um, just, I think, a better understanding of, of why they were terrified. And this is back at Sinai. This was not merely the mist of a cloud descending upon around them. This was the glory of God in a storm. But yet, they are not destroyed. And we see even something even more. They're not just destroyed. They're touched by the transfigured Jesus. Verse 7, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. In the Old Testament, there are three prominent offices that we see among the people of Israel. The office of the prophet, the office of the priest, and the office of the king. Jesus is the embodiment of all three of these offices, prophet, priest, and king. But in in this story, in this event, we see Jesus in particular as the priest who intercedes on behalf of James and John and Peter. And and let let me read something from Hebrews 5, which speaks more to this as Jesus as a priest. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness." Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he has done for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son today. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek Jesus intercedes from what the normal events of being caught up in the glory of God would be which would be death and he touches them even at the rebuke of God listen to him they're not hurt Jesus is already saving them moving on to verse 8 and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, one thing that it's important to understand in this, where we see God acting you know, the, the glory cloud and, the, and, if you will, the terror of God, and then Jesus as a priest coming in and interceding on their behalf, touching them, do not fear. It's important that we understand, it's vital that we understand that Jesus in no way is trying to fix the Father's actions. Do you you hear that? Jesus is not, you know, oh, Dad, you shouldn't do this. You know, let me me make this right. Rather, Jesus is moving in perfect harmony with the Father, as he always does, as he always did, Before all eternity in his eternal place in the blessed trinity with the father and the spirit. He also did in time on earth led by the father by the power of the spirit to walk in obedience and to act out always in perfect harmony with the father. A dance if you remember Scott's sermon from a few weeks ago him describing the relationship Of the Trinity as one of the ways that that we can understand it better, how they interrelate perfectly. That of a beautiful, beautiful dance. And so here, Jesus, the Son of God, is interrelating with the revelation of the Father in a manner that is utterly unified. Through Jesus, the loving kindness, grace, and mercy of God is magnificently revealed through both actions of the Father and of the Son. And then verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Jesus, as he often did, commands the three, and Peter, James, and John were the three that, that were with him the most in the intimate times and and, and when he did a lot of the great miracles. But he commands him, as he did so often, don't say a thing. Scholars refer to this, to this pattern of Jesus saying, saying don't, don't say anything as the secret motif. And of course, there's, there is a reason for this. The reason being that there is a time, always a time, a right time for revelation to come. And it's always in God's time, not our time. But you can't help, or at least I can't help, feeling a little sorry for these guys. I mean, here they've had the, 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 probably the event of their life up to that point. And I, I can see them going down the mountain just thinking, okay, just don't tell us we can't tell anybody. Don't tell us we can't tell anybody. And, um, of course, uh, Jesus shuts them down. Why wait? And, and I think it begs the question, why wait until after Jesus' resurrection to reveal to reveal this, this amazing revelation of Jesus Christ Jesus wanted the disciples he wanted their understanding of this encounter with his glory to be shaped in the light of his death and resurrection that is so important In fact, all that is revealed about Jesus, we are to understand, you and I today, through the lens of his death, resurrection, and ascension. That is absolutely vital. And so what seemed to be a bit harsh, um, maybe a bit of a killjoy, was actually Jesus preserving a greater revelation that would come not only to them, but to the rest of the disciples and so yeah. i think there's i'm just this is a thought there's something in this in understanding the light of christ and what is revealed through him not only through his death and resurrection but also through his suffering that points to how God is revealed and and our understanding of him is shaped through our own suffering, through our own times of testing. The reality, I believe, is that the greatest revelation of the glory of Christ comes through his suffering and even through our suffering. The ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ is that of the suffering servant, the risen lamb. Um, Revelation 6, 5, verse 6, um, bears witness to this. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked up, and behold, a white horse, I'm sorry, Verse, chapter five, not chapter six. When I saw the right hand of Him who was seated at the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, "Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals?" And no one in heaven and on earth was, and under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests of our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And in verse 12, they sang a new song, the myriad, the multitude of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and might and honor and glory, and wisdom. The book of Revelation gives us the ultimate picture of Christ, and God has chosen to reveal that as Christ, as one who has suffered as a lamb. Verse 21, chapter 21, beginning in verse 22, and this is at the end. And I saw no temple in the city, for this temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its light is the Lamb. So in that moment, that, that, that great scene of, of Jesus and his glory being revealed to the disciples on top of the mountain, his, the face, his face shining like the sun is just giving them a taste of what his face will be like in heaven, providing the light. So did you follow me? As I spoke in the beginning, the glory of God revealed precedes the ratification of his covenant with his people Now you might be asking, what in the world are you saying that now for? (laughs) Well, remember, the glory of God revealed through Jesus Christ on the mountain equipped Jesus and was the beginning of the fuller revelation of Jesus Christ at the cross that would be revealed in his resurrection and his ascension and at Pentecost ultimately. When the new covenant which he instituted through the night before he was crucified, which we will celebrate soon. there's anything in conclusion that we can take from this, or that I hope we take from this, is that we no longer need to dread the glory of God. Jesus and his work, his death on the cross, his resurrection, is taking and sitting down beside the Father. Took all the judgment so that in the presence of God, in the glory of God, we are safe. We are safe. At Sinai, touching the mountain brought death. At Mount Zion... Coming near to the Lord brings life. He bids us all to come. To come. We must not forget, though, that he still is God. And God is a consuming fire. And we must be very careful, as God said to the disciples, listen to him. Listen to him. We must obey the commandments of Jesus. It's not an option. Today is, again, we've celebrate, we are celebrating the transfiguration. This day marks the end of the season of Epiphany. We've celebrated the arrival of Jesus Christ to our world, cloaked in humanity, that he might become our Savior. And Ash Wednesday comes this week. And with it, the season of Lent. And as we enter into the season of Lent, we enter into, in a sense, we are invited into a greater reflection of the sufferings of Christ. The 40 days that, that we will spend praying and fasting is a mirror of the 40 days that Jesus took fasting and praying in the wilderness, preparing for his ministry on on this earth. For us, we pray and fast to prepare ourselves for Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is a season for us to identify with the sufferings of Christ. And I'll just again leave you with this one great truth. We no longer have to fear the glory of God. We can enter into the sufferings of Christ, identifying with Christ, not only in our own sufferings and his sufferings, but also the sufferings of others, without fear, knowing that he is with us, he will comfort us, And he will reveal himself in greater measure through us.